Free stuff is awesome, but free stuff to liven up your bedroom is even better. Go to adamandeve.com, the number one adult toy superstore on the internet, and then when you're at the checkout, enter the offer code TMPP. That's TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast, and you'll receive 50% off. So go to adamandeve.com and enter the offer code TMPP. Once again, that's TMPP, as in Thousand Movie Project Podcast. And now, on to the show. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. It's Thursday night, April 23rd, and I've gone to bed early because in the morning I will be turning 29. I always have to remind myself, incidentally, that the age you're turning is the number of years already behind you. So turning 29 means that I'm beginning my 30th year, which means that I'm leaving my 20s behind. So there's some weight to this one, and fittingly enough, I cannot sleep. I think I also can't sleep because I'm home alone tonight. Uh, my roommate is out and about, and I'm, I think I still am not completely comfortable with the, like, living alone situation, or being alone. A little over a year ago, when Toys R Us was in the final days of its going out of business sale, my roommate stopped at one of the stores on his way home, and he bought, among other things, a Ouija board. In case you didn't know, a Ouija board is a plain piece of plastic or cardboard or wood, and it has the alphabet inscribed on it, and you use some sort of pointer object, it's usually called a planchette, to communicate with the dead. It's kind of a game, but then you ask, confer with some people and they'll say it's not a game at all and they've got some traumatic experience. But anyway, so my roommate brought it home and we poured over it like, hey, cool beans, we should get around to using this Ouija board sometime, you know, talk to the dead. But it was kind of tongue-in-cheek, I don't think any of us, either of us were really believing it. Um, but then we never got around to it. Almost in a pointed way, this never happened. The board has been sitting in the corner of our living room ever since, just gathering dust. I tell myself that I don't believe in paranormal shit, and in my most lucid daytime moments, it is absolutely true. I don't believe in ghosts. But, full disclosure, I should add as a caveat that I don't believe in ghosts mainly between the hours of like 5am and midnight. I don't believe in ghosts when the sun is out, and I'm sitting in a crowded office or restaurant among adults who can protect me from ghosts. But when I'm alone in the dark and the world is asleep, and I hear in the next room like a like a like a little thunk, you know, or, or like I hear a little clink, or like a little ping, or when like I'm tiptoeing to the bathroom at night and I hear someone go, "I want you when you shit." Then yes, that like that when that kind of thing happens and I'm home alone, I'm like, yeah, for sure, ghosts exist. When I was 23, I went to see a psychic near Dayland Mall, and her name was Miss Machado, and that's. A st the story of my session with Miss Machado is a story for another time, but at one point, I, I, she told me as a departing piece of advice to never fuck with Ouija boards. N not ever, ever, ever. Not only her, though. My grandmother, my mom's mom, who died just a couple years ago, she was, she was living up in Sebastian, Florida at the time of her death, but when I was growing up, she lived down here on Kendall Drive and 107th Avenue in a third floor apartment. She was really playful and vulgar. I think I got a lot of my sense of humor from her. She was a lot of fun, but if you were to list her faults, one of them is that she was a, a hoarder. And at one point, about 15 years ago, she was moving from that apartment on Kendall Drive into a gated community called The Crossings. So my mom and my brother went to her apartment to help her move out over the course of like three consecutive days. And one of the chores that they kept 
putting off because it was the most intimidating was her bedroom closet, which was piled pretty much to the ceiling with like clothes and knickknacks that she'd picked up at garage sales and thrift stores over the years. But so they're moving out of her apartment and she tells my brother at one point uh, before they really set about tackling the closet, she says, if you find my Ouija board, don't touch it, which is a pretty simple and straightforward directive, but it was a turbulent It was a turbulent three days and little simple directives can get lost. So my mom and my brother, they brave the storm of that apartment. They're cleaning all day. Then they go home and rest. And then they go the next day and they clean from morning till night. And then they go home and they rest. And on the third day, after so many hours and so much sweat and negotiating and frustration, my brother, somewhere in the bowels of my grandma's closet, finds her Ouija board. And he picks it up and he wanders out of the closet and he says, Grandma, what do you want me to do with this Ouija board? And Grandma leaps to her feet and she runs at him and she says, What the fuck did I tell you? She snatches the Ouija board out of his hand, scrambles out of the apartment with it, and she's moving so fast and panicked, it looks like she just might not come back. Like this whole move was actually a plot to have someone just help her find her Ouija board so she could run away with it. But so she goes down to the first floor with the Ouija board, crosses the parking lot, goes to the farthest possible dumpster, and whips the Ouija board over the side. Then she slaps the lid down on it, dusts off her palms, comes hustling back to the apartment. She gets back to her bedroom where my brother is standing at the opening of her closet looking dumbfounded. And she says, listen, I had a bad experience with that Ouija board. It was a terrible experience. Just don't ever use one. Okay, do you promise? And so my brother promises and everybody collects themselves and they get back to the task at hand. I end up hearing about this, and as I've mentioned, I was super into, like, spooky shit when I was a kid. So I was fascinated to think that somebody in my family had a ghost experience, especially that it was my grandmother, who was an incredible storyteller. And I remember who who mesmerized me when I was a kid by telling me this story that apparently she was always making up on the spot about a three-legged dog, and I think his name was Spot. And as she told it, he would, Spot would try to get up and do something, and the punchline was always, and then he fell on his ass. I, it seemed it was probably the funniest thing I'd ever heard up to that point. Anyway, point being, Grandma's a good storyteller, and now I learned that she's apparently got the exact kind of story that I want to hear. And I kept bugging my brother and my mom about it, like, oh, what's the story? What happened to her when she used the Ouija board? And they'd be like, I don't know, she didn't tell us. She just snatched the board away and started freaking out. And I was like, no, but she has to have given you some idea of what happened. She must have given you some detail. And finally, my brother's like, what the fuck did I tell you? And that was that. Neither of them knew the story. But so eventually my grandma comes around to the house to visit one day. And I'm like, hey, Rudy told me you have some story about a bad experience with a Ouija board. What happened? And she gets real somber all of a sudden. And she's like, I don't want to talk about it. And I was like, okay, whatever. But I was a kid and I had no respect for people's boundaries. So basically I wait a few minutes. Everyone's having conversations around the table. Conversations wind down. And I go, so, grandma about this Ouija board and she cuts me off real fast and she goes what the fuck did I tell you and that was that she didn't want to tell me the story to this day I have no idea what freaked her out so much or if in fact anything happened because like I said my grandma was a great storyteller and one of the hallmarks of a great storyteller is that they're usually more interested in amusing themselves than they are their audience she could have been taking the piss out of all of us maybe none of this actually happened eventually as I said she died a couple years ago and uh, she took her stories with her so I'll never know But it is now week five or week six of this quarantine that we're all under because of the coronavirus pandemic. Most of us have to stay in our houses. And I think it's safe to say that most people are getting a little stir crazy. The only person I really hang out with and see in person is my roommate. There's a restaurant across the street where they've got a window open, and I've been going there every morning to get coffee and to have a little conversation with one of the two baristas who's always working there. But otherwise, I really haven't had a conversation, like an in-person conversation, with anybody in over a month. 
My roommate still leaves the apartment now and then for a few hours at a time, either to go see his family in Kendall or to run some errands or go to the office. So when he's gone, I'm normally hanging out in the living room like throughout the afternoon and into the early evening. I'm there and I'm watching movies off the list or I'm reading or I'm working on the podcast. And then down there at the foot of the couch is the box from Toys R Us, the Ouija board. It's been sitting there so long, it's been so neglected that I can't, you can't even read the label. It's covered completely by dust. A few days ago, I got so desperate, I looked at it and I was like, you know what, I'm so desperate for conversation, I need to talk to someone. I don't care if it's a ghost. And so, while my roommate was at work, I broke the seal on the Ouija board, I cleared all the shit off the coffee table, I set the whole thing up, turned off the light, and I sat on the floor, and I put my fingertips on the planchette, and I was like, okay, is there a spirit in the room? And then, without my controlling it, the planchette started to drift toward one of the top corners of the board and it hovered and it hovered and hovered and then it settled on the word yes but anyway i said spirit in the room is there anything you want to tell me and then the planchette started gliding around the board and going it's going across the letters and i had a pen with me so i started like i would jot down every letter that it settled on and it was going so quickly, though, that I, I couldn't parse out the words right away. I had to wait till that, like, invisible pressure eased off the planchette to look at this, this long string of jumbled letters and try to break it up into words. And finally, the planchette eases up, and I look at the words, and I'm like, okay, it says, Wait, what, wait, waited Eiffel, waited Eiffel kettle to, what, okay, it spells out what, what the fuck did I tell you? Time for the quote of the week! Our quote of the week comes from Marilyn Robinson's outstanding novel, Gilead. It's a slim little thing full of concentrated uplift and wisdom, and it's about a pastor named John Ames, who in the 1950s is dying of some unspecified heart condition. The book is composed of letters that he's writing for his son to read when he comes of age. And in his tone of constant Christian forgiveness, he tells us at one point, I've been thinking about existence lately. In fact, I've been so full of admiration for existence that I've hardly been able to enjoy it properly. I know this is all mere apparition compared to what awaits us, but it is only lovelier for that. In eternity, this world will be Troy, I believe, and all that is past here will be the epic of the universe, the ballad that they sing in the streets. Because I don't imagine any reality putting this one in the shade entirely, and I think piety forbids me to try. For these and such other reflections as comprise Marilyn Robinson's gorgeous novel of grace and hope, we raise our glasses. Cheers! It's not even midnight yet, but I'm already in bed because I think I've come to realize that I like I like to wake up early on my birthday. It sounds like an old man thing, but I realized a couple years ago after fretting about how to spend my birthday, where am I going to go to have the most possible fun, and let me hop from this restaurant to that bar to this place and that one. It was stressing me out so much. I was like, what makes me happy? Like, what makes me feel really good? And I realized that I feel happiest when I'm productive, especially like in the afterglow of a day of enjoyable work. And so my plan is to wake up super early, get some work done, go get a little coffee, come back, do a little more work, chat with friends throughout the day, watch a couple movies, do some reading, eat whatever I want, and then when the day is done, I will lay in bed and I will feel wizened and accomplished and satisfied, and that'll be that. Onward into my 30th year. But now I can't sleep. What strikes me about turning 29 is that it's the year of which I seem to remember the least. Like, if you ask me what were the formative moments of this age of my life, I'd have a hard time drawing up a very interesting list, 
And maybe that's just because nothing really happened. So I'm looking at 28 and I'm thinking, okay, I, I wrote another book, which I'm happy about. I watched a lot of movies off the list. I made a dent in the list. Um, I wrote a lot for the website. I read a few books. I produced a few podcast episodes. I got my first sponsor for the podcast, which was a, a great boon. But then it kind of tapers off from there and I don't, nothing stands out. What I think it comes down to, ultimately, is that the age of 28 was simultaneously the most productive year of my life and the most uneventful. Really, what I've mostly done this year is work, and that's good. I'm proud to have cultivated this kind of discipline and to have generated so much productivity. I think it's yielded a lot of good stuff. It just, like Apart from work, it just feels like 28 was a long succession of first dates. Dates from which I also learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself, I learned about dating, I learned about the kinds of partner I might like to have, and I learned about how to sort of conduct myself, uh, which is a subtopic for another episode. And then the dating was also a huge education in the sense that every woman I went out with dropped some knowledge about her profession or her interests or insights that she'd picked up while traveling. So if I were to reach for something distinct about my social life from being 28 years old, I'd say that it was my first full year in like the world of mannered, conventional, adult dating. Like, meet at a bar, pull out your chair, how was work, pick up the tab type shit. So it was writing and dating, writing and dating, and actually what stands out to me now when I look back and I look at the year in that context is this one particular woman I was talking to for a long time on Hinge back during the winter. Her name is Jen, and Jen is 38 years old, so she's 10 years older, but conversation was fluent and friendly and we were both trading lengthy paragraphs. It was really enjoyable. I asked her at one point, obviously, what she did professionally, and she said, I work for a commercial real estate company, it's super corporate and boring, I promise it's the least interesting thing about me. And then she changed the subject. So we talked about other things for a few days until I asked if she was available to get a drink sometime in the next whatever, sometime soon. And she said, well, I'm in Denver all this week and then I'll be back in Denver next week, but I can get together on either Saturday night or Sunday night, both of which regrettably were nights when I was working at the restaurant. I asked her at that point if she often had to travel for work and she said, yeah. And she sounded kind of bummed about it. And she said, yeah, I, I, I've got a dog, so it's a bit of a headache, but I'm, yeah, pretty much traveling all the time. But then after describing her work situation with something that sounded like regret, she kind of hastened to say that she's nonetheless grateful to have a job that allows her to see so much of the country and to interact with so many people and to attend all these conferences and on the corporate dime. Like, she let out this flood of appreciation after voicing, like, a kernel of dissatisfaction. And so at that point, I asked her what exactly she does at this company, and she said, well, there's a lot of technical stuff, but the simple way of putting it is to say that the higher-ups at this commercial real estate firm, people who are kind of isolated up in their tower, they relay a ton of information to me about where the company is standing and where the company wants to go, and then I translate all of that into a kind of business strategy, and I communicate that business strategy to the agents, and I help the agents set up individual goals and divvy up their territories. And then, like just as hastily as she had assured me earlier that she was grateful to be so gainfully employed, she said in a way that seemed like a reprimand, how did you get me talking about my work? Really, it's super boring, let's talk about something else. And so I never mentioned her work again, and we went on talking for another couple weeks, but it seemed like our respective jobs kept getting in the way of our plans to meet up. By the time we'd been talking for a month without any kind of development, we both just petered off into our respective directions. At one point in our conversation, we were taking turns discussing what like our ideal future would look like, and she said with total clarity, I know exactly what my dream future would look like, and she starts detailing her ideal rural home. She wants to live in a small town, she wants to spend every afternoon outdoors with a dozen dogs. She sketches this whole thing, and it has like touches of fantasy to it, as anybody's projection of an ideal future is going to have, but the gist of what she was describing sounded super humble and doable, and something like within imminent grasp if she were to pursue it suddenly. 
Also, she said, I've been super strict about saving money for the past dozen years or so because my goal is to retire at 45. And I said, you want to retire like like live a life of leisure after 45? And she said, no, I'm sure I'd go crazy if I had nothing to do. What I mean is I want to retire from corporate America and I want to do something a little more local, wherever it is that I end up, something where I feel like I'm actually helping people and making a difference. And she went on and on in that vein and describing, describing what sounded like a, a quaint, humble, cozy Midwestern life. Now, for all of, like, the tumblesome lucidity of our conversation over those three weeks or so, her job was this landmine, this elephant in the room, that I knew we weren't supposed to discuss, but given the fact that we weren't allowed to discuss it, it almost became, like, the sun around which every other topic existed in a kind of nervous orbit. And so when I'd think of Jen, I would think of her in a romantic capacity, obviously, because we're talking on a dating app, but I would also think of this career of hers, which seems like it's very complicated and corporate and technical, but also, by merit of being corporate and technical, it seems very simple to understand. It seems like exactly what she's describing. It seems boring. The way I learned about her job is by the way that she spoke of her ideal future. A future that was social and communal and intimate and consistent. She dreamed of a future that was composed of things that she didn't have in her current professional situation. A situation that had pretty much eclipsed her social life and kept her moving around the country all the time. She told me at one point that she seldom even stocks her refrigerator with perishables unless she's sure that she's going to eat them before the end of the week. Jen is 38 and she lives alone in a high-rise apartment in an expensive part of town and she was clearly happy enough with her life to sustain a bubbly demeanor and a great sense of humor but there was d a definite angst about her situation. She was grateful for her job, she was proud of the work that she did, but she also seemed burdened by the fact that her job was not itself a life, that it, that it allowed her to survive but it kept her from having a life. And Jen is coming to mind now as I'm turning 29 because I look back on what this past year was like, and what do I see? I see myself sitting in coffee shops with a notebook, sitting in bars with a notebook. I see myself going on a date after a date after a date in which some other person and I kind of grasp for something that we can't define. Everyone I, I go on a date with, it's like we're both sitting down with this mutual vibe about our lives where it's like, I don't know what I want for sure, but I know it's not this. My 28th year, though perfectly pleasant, is, as I said, not that memorable. Productive, but not memorable. And that's fine for this year. But how am I going to feel if next year is productive but not memorable? And the next year? And the next? What if I wake up on my 40th birthday and my conclusion about the past decade is like, hey, nothing happened, but I got a lot of shit done. For the past three years that I've been working on Thousand Movie Project, I've been almost fetishizing work ethic and productivity and discipline, and I do think that it's helped me to cultivate some good skills. A consequence of this mindset, however, is that I tend to bristle at the idea of, say, taking three days off from writing and going to hang out at the Keys, or saving up for a year so I can go spend a week in Europe. The reason I've stayed so much within my comfort zone over the past year is that I've told myself that my work, particularly Thousand Movie Project, is the most important thing in my life and I need to be in tip-top shape for it every day. The only way I could have been this productive is by adhering to a very strict routine. But I could probably step out of my comfort zone more often and still be productive. And I think that's going to be my big focus for the coming year. Because I have the work ethic at this point, I have the sort of mental and emotional dedication to my work. Now I just need to get my body away from the desk. Time for the second quote of the week! Normally we only do one of these, but fuck it, I like this segment, and it's my birthday, so let's go back one more time to Marilyn Robinson's novel Gilead, and her narrator, the dying Reverend John Ames, as he observes to his young son, quote, 
people who can see right through you never quite do you justice because they never give you credit for the effort that you're making to be better than you actually are, which is difficult and well-meant and deserving of some little notice. For this and her many other nuggets of kind-hearted, forgiving, life-affirming insights, we look toward Marilyn Robinson and we raise our glasses. Cheers! I don't know if you've felt this too, or if maybe it's totally unremarkable, but I have this curious feeling whenever one of my longtime friends brings their lover along to a party or something and you know introduces us, introduces the group to the person, and I think part of this weird vibe I get about meeting my friends' significant others has to do with the fact that we're all in our late 20s and early 30s. When we were in our early 20s or in our late teens, a friend would show up to a party and they would have a significant other on their arm, and what you would immediately notice is, wow, that person that they have found is very attractive. I can see why they've decided to hook up and start a relationship with this person. I think it's safe to say that dating was a little more superficial when we were younger. But now that we're older, it's a little more nuanced. Because obviously in, in your late 20s and early 30s, you aren't old by any stretch, but you are pretty much moving past that point in your life where, for instance, you can eat whatever you want and not gain weight, uh, where everyone's looking perpetually slim and vibrant and energized and good. Our lifestyles at this age are beginning to mark us. A 22-year-old who drinks too much looks like a 22-year-old. A 32-year-old who drinks too much looks like an alcoholic. Same thing with smokers, or people who have a rabid sweet tooth, or people who spend all night at the club, or all day at the beach. By the time we reach our late 20s, we are all starting to wear our lives on our bodies, if that makes sense. So now, at this age, somebody brings their significant other to a party, and I meet them for the first time, it's, it's generally no longer the case that I'm immediately struck by the appearance of that person. Also, being mostly 28 to 32 years old, those of us who are professionals still occupy fairly amateur positions in our fields. So very few of us have a uniquely high or a uniquely low income. Nobody's really wearing nice jewelry or designer clothes. People in my age group are fairly nondescript. So what I'm generally noticing about my friend's lovers when they join us for dinner or a bar crawl or a party or something is basically just that they, this person appears to be friendly. That's pretty much all I can discern. But, I don't know if you've ever been in this particular situation, but it's happened to me twice. You're at a public restroom and you hear two people fucking in one of the stalls. And so you finish up your business and you go to leave, but then once you're outside the bathroom, you kind of hang around, like at a distance, to see what they look like when they come out. And of course when they come out, they aren't tussled or anything. They had sex and then they went to the mirror and the sink and they composed themselves. They look like average people walking out of the bathroom. But you know that they were just fucking in there. And it's not a bad thing, it's just... You, it's such a stark contrast to see them in only the most distant pedestrian way, but also to know something about them, something they just did that is so intimate. And that is literally almost exactly what it's like when I meet one of my close, when one of my close friends introduces me to their significant other. There goes another episode. I'm finishing this on my actual birthday, and I'm gonna. The epilogue is always the easiest thing 
to do for the show. But yeah, so it is now my birthday, and as I'm recording this epilogue, I'm noticing that I'm having some trouble with this Yeti mic, which is the blue Yeti mic, which I think is the most common podcasting microphone, and I see it on Twitch streams all the time. It's been it's been really great, and it served me really well, but I'm having issues with like the sound sensitivity, and I, it's making me think, like, okay, maybe it's time to upgrade, because I'm podcasting so consistently, and certainly if I were to invest money into equipment for podcasting, it would incentivize me, because I would be guilted. I'd be like, okay, there's no way I just spent $300 or whatever it would cost on like a fancy higher tier mic and just let it languish on my desk. And that idea actually of forking over money so that I could get more serious with the podcast has been, co- it's pertinent to what I've been thinking about over the past, I guess, almost 24 hours. Yesterday in the late afternoon, just before the end of my shift, sort of doing the online tutoring, I got a call from the from my boss at the restaurant where I've been working f- since December. She was telling me that she just got word from corporate that this particular restaurant is not going to be reopening when the quarantine is over. And she kind of couched it with, I, I think I felt bad for her because she, I, she, I think she's seen this restaurant through from when it first opened three years ago and now she's having to you know, systematically call every employee and it's not a big staff. And one of the, they like pride themselves on the fact that the staff is kind of small because also the staff has mostly been there from day one. So I felt bad for her, but now I'm thinking like I'm about beginning today. I'm in a month long recess from the college and now I just lost that second job. So fortunately my expenses are pretty low and I'm going to get that government stimulus check, but it's, it's prompting me to think serious i mean i was already thinking seriously over the course of the quarantine just thinking about the future and where i'm gonna go with this and i do already have one sponsor adam and eve and i have a list of some other people that i'm going to reach out to see if they might be interested but i'm wondering you know you get like obviously the podcast and the videos that i do generate the most attention much more so than the than the blogs because it's easier to listen to a podcast or watch a video than it is to read a blog post every day And because the podcast is both enjoyable and generates some attention, I've been thinking, well, what if I spend less time working on the blogs, more time working on the podcast? Then if I'm focusing more time on the podcast, if it's more consistent, if it cultivates a larger audience, then I can maybe get more sponsors. More sponsors means more money. More money means I can spend more time on the podcast, and it would be this sort of self-perpetuating prosperity loop. That at least is the kind of pie-in-the-sky impression that I have of things. And of course, all of this, I'm thinking of sort of the end goal is a book deal. That's sort of like my life's goal is to be is to um, get is to be able to live and work as a writer. But I had a segment in this episode that I ended up scrapping because it wasn't I don't know it just didn't fit right. And it was I mentioned earlier about Jen, the woman I was talking to on Hinge for a while before we kind of our our jobs got in the way of anything happening. She had been able to spell out for me very clearly like what her ideal life situation is and i was not at the time but that's one of the things that i've been thinking about as as we're all kind of crunched into our heads with the quarantine the reason i can seldom get a very comprehensive idea of where i want to be in the future is because it's like that's such a big concept the future and i don't know am i thinking about where i want to be romantically where i want to be professionally where i want to be geographically but i figured that because i'm it's because i'm blowing the idea up into something so huge that it is That's why I'm not making any headway in thinking about my future. So finally, I was like, okay, what is an ideal living situation? Like, given I know that wherever I go, I'm going to be writing a lot. I'm going to be watching a lot of movies. I'm going to be reading a lot. And then what I like to do with my time off at the end of the day is go to a bar and read. Just 
like I know what I'm going to be doing wherever I am. So what's if I were to fantasize like a perfect day in a perfect setting doing those things, what is it? And I realized it's like I would want this is ideal a little why am I now suddenly self-conscious about broaching it? Like my ideal would be, I think, a, like a two-bedroom apartment in this part of uh, Miami called Coral Gables. It's this weird mix of like very much in the city and very much a suburb. Like a two-bedroom apartment there, and one make one of the bedrooms into an office sort of recording studio for the podcast, and yeah, just live in one of those apartments with all my books and recording equipment and just do my thing. And so I looked up like what that would cost, and yeah, it's sort of simplified my way of thinking. Like I'm thinking, okay, in order to have that lifestyle, it would cost probably X number of dollars per month. And it's not an outlandish amount of money. And then I just reverse engineer it and think, what are the sort of things I have to do in order to make sure that I'm getting that much money per month? And I do think that it's conceivable. I could swing that with the podcast. It would be probably like a year of solid and very consistent and very prolific and very versatile podcast production. I don't know if I really have that ahead of me in the next year, but it is kind of a, it's, it's, a, I guess it's somewhat aspirational, but not the craziest thing to look forward to like as the, where I want to be when I'm 30. I'm perfectly happy where I am in this part of town doing what I'm doing. But when I was working at the restaurant and the college together, that was like often over 50 hours a week. And then I would spend another, you know, 20 or 25 hours over the course of the week working on Thousand Movie Project, whether it was reading uh, books about film or books that are going to inform the podcast. Or And then also I was working on the novel for a, long, for a lot of that time. And so as I was kind of discussing here and on Instagram today, I just surrendered my social life for, for the course of my 28th year. And I think I might end up doing that, like if I'm already doing that, if, I'm, if I've already embraced this work ethic and I'm going to be so dogged, I may as well channel all that energy into something that I'm really going to enjoy, something where at the end of the day, I'm going to be able to show something for all of my work ethic. I remember having this conversation with a manager at Cheesecake Factory when I worked there. There was a manager who used to always, his name was Jesus, and he would show up right on time at like, Jesus, 8 a.m. He was always there long before I arrived. And one Sunday morning, and Sunday mornings are the busiest at Cheesecake Factory because it's a big after church kind of place. But so there was one particular Sunday where he showed up two hours after I'd already been there and he had bags under his eyes and he was drinking coffee out of, his, out of a big soup cup. And I was like, oh, it's strange to see you pop in at this hour. And he said, yeah, last night um, there had been apparently some malfunction in the, in the bakery's computer. I don't, I don't remember the details. So when they finally closed up shop, they realized that they had wrongly calculated every receipt. It was it was some laborious, meticulous thing they then had to do of like sifting through every single transaction from the entire day and night. And he said we were we were here until after three in the morning. So he had gotten to the restaurant at like ten a.m. He stayed there until three in the morning. He went home. He knocked out. He slept for like six hours, and then he just stood up, took a shower, changed his clothes, and walked right back into the restaurant. And yes, he's earning a living, he's salaried, and maybe there are bonuses at the end of the year for him, but I was, we got to talking at one point about, like, he had worked something like 60 hours that week, and I was like, if you had spent 60 hours building a treehouse, you would have most of a treehouse or several treehouses to show for your work. If you had spent 60 hours working with your hands on anything, you would be able to see sort of your influence on the world, whether you had conjured this thing into existence or you had cleaned some massive surface, I don't know. But having devoted 60 hours of his time and energy to the restaurant, there was nothing to show for it but for the fact that there were a few extra dollars in the till and, uh, you know, the place was still running and it was clean. Granted, also, those those 
hours of work are not for nothing. You are helping people get a service that they really want, and you're helping to keep the, the gears of the restaurant turning so that other people can make money. And that's no small feat in a restaurant because I have found in the two restaurants where I have worked, it seemed like the majority of the staff is like a single parent or they're they're working their way through nursing school or college, something. So it's honest work. It's good work. It's nothing, certainly nothing to be ashamed of, but it can prompt this kind of existential crisis where you're like, at the end of the day, you're, you're, you've got blood in your shoes and you're exhausted and your legs feel like lead and you and you lay down in bed and you stare at the ceiling and you think, what do I have to show for any of this? When I went and recounted that conversation to a bartender at Irish Times, which used to be in South Miami and is no longer there, that bartender, Richie, he told me like, when he had been a bar manager, the way that he conceptualized working in a managerial capacity in hospitality is like you're plugging bullet holes in a dam with your fingers. He says you've only got so many fingers and your arms can only stretch so long, but the water is never going to stop coming. And to find that, here I am, I'm working on Thousand Movie Project and it is absolutely, like I'm loving it and it's helping me. It's teaching me a lot and I'm, I'm, I'm definitely growing, but it's also a road toward the future that I want. Thousand Movie Project, the ultimate goal of Thousand Movie Project is that it'll hopefully help me get a book deal and then I can sort of begin a career in writing. And so now I guess I'm just thinking a little more critically about what sacrifices can I make in order to be more and more and more productive? Because it would be, like I always tell myself, if only I had X number of hours, I would write, you know, a dozen blog posts and then I would have content for days. And then sometimes I find that spare time and I don't end up doing all of the writing that I told myself I would. But I think there's a psychological component to that, which is I don't really get much feedback on the writing that I put to the website. I have three or four consistent readers who leave comments, but for the most part, I, I look at the, the view count and I see that people are reading it all over the world. I think it's across 22 countries that I have like a consistent readership but people don't really engage with it in the way that they engage with the podcast. Kevin Smith told a story about hanging out with uh, Robin Williams on the set of Goodwill Hunting, and that um, when Robin Williams would walk around, people would wave at him in the street and they would say, Hey, Mork, referring to an alien character that he played on TV like 25 years prior. And Kevin Smith was like, Jesus Christ, of all the things you've done in your career, Mrs. Doubtfire, Jumanji, whatever, that people still call you out as Mork? And Robin Williams was like, yeah, I mean, a movie is a movie and people grow up with movies, but when you're on a TV show and you're in people's homes once a week and they gather around with their family on the sofa and, you know, it's just, it's it's more intimate. And I'm certainly noticing that, like, I've only really been doing the rebooted podcast for about a year now, and yet it seems to have generated, like, 10 times the amount of response from people that I've gotten from the blog. And I think that's just because, like, you're a voice in their car, you're a voice in their earbuds while they're doing chores, while they're in a waiting room. And so, yes, it, it, so it makes sense that I might have been discouraged at times in thinking, like, okay, let me not force myself to spend 25 hours a week working on the blog. Whereas if I were spending 25 hours a week working on a podcast, maybe generating two a week or two every 10 days, I feel like there would be more feedback and the feedback would kind of fuel the fire so that I'm not running strictly on willpower. So I don't know, that's kind of where my head is now on my birthday and things are going well. With the remainder of the day, I intend to watch Enter the Dragon starring Bruce Lee and maybe Papillon, or is it pa Papillion? The island prison movie with uh, Dustin Hoffman and Steve McQueen. That's about it. Thanks for listening, guys. Talk to you next time.